0: We're going to go through Matthew chapter five, going through chapter seven, and uh, we'll see what the Lord has to say to us about that. And if you're new here, welcome. If you're a student that just came back, welcome back. If you have any questions for us, you can ask um, me or whoever you saw in the band or handing out bulletins behind the counter at the coffee shop um, or just ask somebody that you think knows something. And if they don't know, they can probably refer you to someone. But um, we're, we're happy to answer any questions for you here. Let's uh, just open up in prayer. God, thanks for uh, these people. Thank you for um, loving us. And I pray that you would speak to us through these passages. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting Matthew chapter 5. Um, you know, back in the 80s... Um, yeah, those were, those were pretty glorious years, weren't they? I, I had a, a babysitter who owned a computer. That was a big deal back then. Um, not everyone had them back then. She, uh, she picked me up in, in her Cadillac along with her other kids because they had a lot of money to have a computer and a Cadillac back in the 80s. So sometimes I, I had to do my homework. And sometimes um, she allowed me to use the computer instead of the typewriter. Do some of you even know what a typewriter is? Like, if you're in college, can you put your hand up if you've never used a typewriter? Okay, so it, it was the same. It was the same creation that existed at the same time that the abacus and smoke signals were used. Um, yeah, it was like, and then if you made a mistake, you had to pull it out, wide out, and like, it was. It was a really. It was really. A nightmare. Anyway, back then I got to use this software program called WordPerfect 4.0, and most of you probably don't even know what that is. Well, it, it was this word processing program, and um, it was really advanced for the time. And and. Do some of you remember that butcher paper that was used for the printers that had the holes on the side? Yeah. And there were these humongous knobs that took like so much torque out of your hand, it would give you like carpal tunnel, just, right? And um, it's humongous paper, right? Like a tree per sheet. That's how big it was. And then it would print, but it would print like all in one scroll. So you'd have to tear it each page. Do you remember that? I go through a relapse or something when I think about it, but years and years went by and the babysitter would upgrade her family's software to 4.1, 4.2. But, you know, as a primary school student, I I really didn't have to know all that much about the software because I just used it for simple things like a science project or or a book report or something. So I never bothered learning learning anything else about uh, what it could do except for those simple things, right? Like... Printing out a big S on one sheet in then science project, right? So, for many of us, that's that's kind of how we approach our faith. That's kind of how we approach the Bible. That's how we approach Jesus. That we start with with some sort of simple knowledge of Him and and what He says in the says in the Bible, but but then we kind of stop there, and we don't further explore more completely how much richness there is in the Scriptures and in Jesus. Have you ever wondered? What's the point of knowing what's good if you don't keep trying to be a good person? So I I wanted to go through Matthew chapter five through seven uh, in the next several weeks to go over what's often called the Sermon on the Mount and begin to scratch the surface to show some of Jesus' teachings a little bit more, to shed light on them a little bit more. See, learning all about a specific program on a computer isn't essential in in some settings, but learning the Sermon on the Mount is essential to be successful in the Christian life. And the Sermon on the Mount is sometimes called the call to discipleship. What is a disciple? A Christian disciple is someone who is learning from Jesus how to lead their life as he would lead their life if he were in their place. the New Testament defines a disciple as someone who is with Jesus learning how to be more like him. And to get a better context of of this, we have to go back to the previous chapter, chapter four. And in chapter four, verse 17, 17, we see Jesus proclaiming his basic message, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then you'll notice Jesus demonstrating that the kingdom of heaven is at hand through his actions with God, with God's rule from heaven by meeting the desperate needs of the people that are around him. So chapter four, verses 23 through 25. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon possessed, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and beyond the Jordan. Okay, we have to clarify what the kingdom is. A kingdom is where the authority of a king is manifest. It's where whatever he wants to happen in his kingdom happens. So, for example, our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will, where what we want done gets done. So, like at this church, my effective will allows me to preach this message, to say things that I want to say right now. Your effective will allows you to sleep during my message. So, you can do that during that time. So, so the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. And it's not to be prayed to come into existence like in the Lord's Prayer where it says your kingdom come. Gets a little bit confusing there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It doesn't mean that it's not here. It's already here. When it says your kingdom come, it means that the kingdom will be made obvious in our lives. And when you look at the Bible, you see that the kingdom of God is God acting. It's where what he wants to get done gets done. The kingdom of God is what God is doing. So where the Bible tells us to seek first the kingdom of God, we are to try to find out what God is doing and then get involved in it. And when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, I am praying first that God's will be done in my own life and then around me. And it's His effective will that I bless and I don't curse. That I let my yeses be yeses and my noes, noes. That I not be motivated by anger and contempt. And you'll notice that after ministering to the needs of the gospel, uh, ministering to the needs of the people crowding around him at the end of chapter four, it brings us to this scene in chapter five, verses one and two. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, "Okay, we're going to stop there for a bit. Notice that Jesus doesn't hide his great teachings from the general public. He sees the multitude. He goes up to the mountain so that people could see and hear him a little better. And from there, he speaks because he desired to teach them. And this seems to be a typical thing of Jesus. He'll let anyone hear, but what he is going to say is really for disciples. And many cults have special teachings within their inner cores, but they hide things from the general population. It's not so with Jesus. That's not so with Christianity. If that's something that you ever find yourself in, get out. Jesus has no hidden agenda. His teachings are open for everyone to hear, and he has nothing to hide. So here Jesus is in, in the middle of, of raw humanity, where those he just healed from sickness, from disease, from demons, from disabilities, they're hanging on every word that Jesus said. says. And, and what does he say to them? He teaches them about the meaning of the availability of the heavens. And that's when the Sermon Sermon on the Mount happens. Now, I want to point out several characteristics uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, it's for disciples. I believe that what Jesus is going to say in the next three chapters isn't good teachings for the world, but for disciples and followers of His. And it's available for others to hear, but it's really meant for His students. Number two is, is that it's not idealism. It's, it's for this present life. Number three, understanding it and letting it transform you or us spiritually comes only from actions and following Christ's example. And you can't understand it until you follow Jesus and you realize its meaning when you seek to follow and you fail and you learn from those failures. Number four, it's Christ centered. Everything centers on Jesus' person and what He does. And you'll notice that everything He teaches, He already is. He's the center of it all. He's the source and the power behind the sermon. Number five, Jesus explains His own teachings by His own actions. And if you have any problems understanding what Jesus says or teaches, all you have to do is look at His actions. His actions explains what He means. Because He is His message. Verses 3 through 12 of the Sermon on the Mount are are called the Beatitudes. And the sermon opens with a series of statements that declare what it means to be blessed. And there's a pattern here that's found in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, and it has a fairly regular rhythm to it. It says, blessed are the blank for blank. And the type of person who is blessed is described and then why they are so is given. And if we take a larger chunk, starting from verse 3 going through 20, there's a specific question that we have to answer when we read those verses in, in that entirety. And that question is according to Jesus, who is it that has a good life? So let's just start out by reading several of the Beatitudes, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. How many of you look at these verses and just become discouraged? Anybody? You look at them and you, and you ask yourself, how am I going to do this? Right? I know me. I can't do that. And I want to tell you that it is impossible. So instead of thinking that you'll be this type of person now, I, I just want you to not think about that at all that it's not necessarily an action and an attitude, but that you have to focus on your relationship with Jesus. And I want you to ask yourself, how am I to live in response to these Beatitudes? And don't take these verses as an impossible way of life or an overwhelming task that is just discouraging news. It's encouraging news. It's good news. And unfortunately, many have interpreted this this to make it sound like bad news. You know, as for myself... I was taught that the Beatitudes are teachings on how to be blessed. Anyone else taught that growing up? A few? Not so. They are not teachings on how to be blessed. You know, it caused a lot of confusion for me because it made me think that the ideal Christian was poor and sad, weak and mild. And quite honestly, I didn't want to be like that. I mean, who wants to be poor in spirit? Yeah, I I look forward to being destitute of of every spiritual quality. It's weird. I don't want to be able to attain any type of positive spiritual benefit. That's what makes me worthy of the kingdom of God. Really? Who wants to mourn? That isn't something that's usually associated with good things, right? That usually means that something bad happened. Yes, I'm spiritually impoverished, so now I, I qualify for the kingdom of God. My life sucks. Count me in. And and who wants a brand of religion that just breeds a guilty conscience born out of not being able to live a certain way, not being poor in spirit or not mourning, and and that guilt leads nowhere, and it weakens what it means to be, what is meant to be a message of hope. And on the other hand, those who are more able to live in the way of the beatitudes seem to get puffed up with pride because. They're able to conform to this. You know, I was guilty of this and, and probably still deal with some of that pride because I was taught to conform to these teachings and taught to believe that the Beatitudes were to be some type of law that has to be obeyed. And it just created a legalistic person. See, I was taught wrong. They are not laws to be obeyed. These are expressions of life that come to you through the new birth in Jesus. Jesus. And from this new birth, you naturally ready yourself to develop into a new kind of person. These aren't instructions to do anything. They aren't conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. No one is actually being told that they're better off being poor for mourning, for being persecuted, and so on. Jesus delivered them from those things at the end of chapter four. Why would they be good at the beginning of chapter five? And the listed conditions aren't indications of who will be closest to Jesus in heaven. they are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting on that mountain at the Sermon of the Mount of the present availability of the kingdom of God through a personal relationship with Jesus. And Jesus used this immediate setting on the mountain to show us the very people who, who just received the kingdom of heaven through him. Jesus would be able to point out individuals from the crowd that He delivered from mourning, from being poor in spirit. Those He blessed because the kingdom had just reached out and touched them with Jesus' heart, with His voice, with His hands. And the Beatitudes single out cases that prove that in Jesus, the rule of God from the heavens is available in life circumstances that are beyond hope. And when we're poor in spirit, when we're mourning, those are times that those things are available to us, that the kingdom of heavens are available to us. The Beatitudes can't be good news if they are simply understood as a set of how-tos for achieving blessedness. They would then only amount to a new type of legalism. That wouldn't serve to open the kingdom of God to us. That would just impose a new brand of Pharisaism. It would actually act as a new way of slamming the door shut to the kingdom. So The Beatitudes aren't spiritual goals that we strive for. They're in an announcement, a proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is available even to those who are poor, to those who are mournful, to those who are meek. So let's take verse three, for example. Verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or in Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke chapter six, verses 20, it says, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, some people believe that they have to become poor in order to be blessed. And that's a misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching. All of Jesus' teachings are about the Kingdom of God. He proclaimed it, He manifested it, and He taught about entering the Kingdom of God through faith in Him and the process of being transformed so that the kinds of behavior taught are a natural expression of who we've become. So, as someone who is living in the Kingdom, I'm praying that this may become a true expression of who I am by inner transformation. And discipleship is learning how to do that. And and in order to do that, we need to have a vision of God. And if we want to seek the kingdom of God, the first thing we need to do is to step into teachings like the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if we try to step into the teachings by merely following the teachings and just making a checklist saying, I'm poor in spirit, I'm mournful, I'm meek, you'll just become legalistic. We have to become not someone who merely does the law, but the kind of person who naturally does what the law says. That that is the process of spiritual growth. Notice that Jesus didn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit because they're poor in spirit. Poor poor in spirit gets confusing for some. We, We can best understand what he's saying if we describe poor in spirit as those who are spiritually bankrupt, spiritual beggars, deprived and deficient, those without any trace of religion. People like this are blessed because they have the access to the kingdom of God that is available to them even in such a poor state. And even if you have nothing spiritually, God has provision for you to enter into His kingdom. The kingdom of God is available to you even if you're spiritually broke and you have nothing to offer. You have no idea what God is about. And the poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus because, not because they earned it, but in spite of it. In the midst of their deplorable condition, the kingdom of heaven or the rule of heaven has moved upon them and through them with redemption by the grace of Jesus. And when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, he didn't mean that they somehow earned blessing because of their condition. But it's in spite of their desperation, in spite of their despair, that they have been invited freely to partake in the kingdom of grace. So imagine yourself in this setting at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus had just healed all these people that are following, up, following him up to the hill, and where these Beatitudes are being delivered, there Jesus is sitting because that was the, the customary posture of teaching in his day. The teacher sat and the audience stood, so now let's practice that. You guys stand, I'm going to sit. No takers. Okay, so here the crowd is standing around Jesus, a crowd full of nobodies. People that have no spiritual abilities, no qualifications at all. You would never think to call on them to to, to perform some spiritual work. There's nothing they can offer spiritually. They don't know their Bible. They don't know the worship songs. They have no religious reputation or spiritual influence. And there's nothing to suggest that God is going to use them. And perhaps they can attend a service or give financially to a ministry, but they don't really contribute much else. Sound familiar to any of you guys? There are people who have no confidence to serve because they feel that they have nothing to offer. People like this walk by us every day. People who wouldn't dare to say that they have any claim on God whatsoever because there is nothing in their spiritual bank account. They feel no spiritual significance. Yet, here we see that God touched them. And in the present day, if we recognize the access we have to the kingdom of the heavens we can offer that as well. We can offer this gift of the kingdom to the poor in spirit who are around us. That's why in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. See, it has nothing to do with equality that we have. But it has everything to do with a relationship that we have. I'm greater if I live in the kingdom because greater power works within me that's available to me through the kingdom of heavens. The power of, of God is available to me. And so here we have people on this mountain who could say, Jesus touched me. He touched me. The kingdom of heaven, the rule of heaven came down upon their lives through their contact with Jesus. And from that, they were blessed by the heart and the hand of God. They were healed of body, mind, and or spirit. And that's what's available to us. Those of us who are in the kingdom are greater than John the Baptist. See, Christianity is more than just the forgiveness of sins. Some of you are thinking, really? I thought that's it. I mean, that is a great, great thing. And I'm not downplaying that at all. I'm not taking lightly Christ's death for me on the cross but is that, is that all there is to an abundant life? He died for me now, so now I'm just going to wait till I die to go to heaven. Are we to just sit idle and do nothing? Does being a Christian have nothing to do with the kind of person you are? Does justification involve no change at all in your heart or the one who is forgiven? Is it necessary to be a good Christian to be forgiven? Are we to suppose that God gives us nothing that really influences character or spirituality? Are we to suppose that, in fact, Jesus has no substantial impact on our lives? Can we seriously believe that God would establish a plan for us that essentially bypasses the desperate needs of people and leaves human character untouched? Something has gone seriously wrong when moral failure is so rampant in our churches. Maybe the church is not eating what it's selling. Maybe what we're selling is irrele- irrelevant to our existence and it lacks power. And perhaps the church is failing in its gospel message because of precisely what it is teaching. See, the right Christian right teaches that the forgiveness of sins is all that is needed to gain admission to heaven. Just pray in your heart that Jesus forgives you of your sins and you'll be saved. That's it. That's all you got to do, brother. Whatever happened to Regeneration. Whatever happened to transformation? Are you now supposed to just go to church, read your Bible, learn some songs, sing them, give some money, and then wait to die? I'm in heaven now. Has it been substituted with justification? Yes, dealing with atonement and afterlife are important, but they're not the only issues involved in salvation. You're like, heretic! No. No. The gospel is more than the death of Jesus. It's also about the life of Jesus. The left is guilty too. The left focuses on community, love, equality, liberation, inclusivism, social justice. It's the social gospel, right? Now the church on the left is dealing with issues of environment, gender, sexual preference, preference, speciesism, and generalized correctness. While the banner of the right is forgiven, the banner of the left is God is love. But if we break down that definition of love, what does it mean? That a love that accepts people without any strings attached, accepting them for what they are, and that Jesus loves oppressed people and those who are different. Sounds good on the surface. Let's dig a little deeper. Does that bring about regeneration? Does that bring about transformation? I thought Jesus came from heaven to earth to personally engage humanity while holding us responsible to specific orders on how to live, how to conduct our life. And we've had a problem with responsibility since our existence. See, our job when God created us was to rule with God, not independent of God, over all living things. And God equipped us for this task. He framed our nature to function in a personal relationship with him, in interactive responsibility with him, not independent of him. And we are to meant to exercise our rule only in union with God, as he acts with us. He intends to be our constant companion, a co-worker in creatively ruling life on earth. But then came the fall. And after the fall, a lot of our energy and time is spent just trying to dominate each other or trying to escape from domination from one another. And we can trace this from office politics to tribal warfare in in less developed nations to international relations in developed nations. And we try to earn our existence by the sweat of someone else's brow rather than our own. So instead of God being God, the left has God as love become whatever the current ideology says it is. And currently, that means not treating people different while liberating them from enabling them to do whatever they want. So what ends up taking place is a gospel that is a gospel of desire. And desire has become what is sacred, what is esteemed. So whatever comes in opposition to their desire is now evil, is now sin. What has happened to the church? Both of the Gospels of the left and the right teach that we should believe something about the historic Christ of 2000 years ago. But Whatever happened to believing and relying on a living Christ who lives right now, who's in our presence right now, the living Christ who's present among us now. And the Gospel is the good news of the present availability of life in the kingdom now and forever, not when you die. Through reliance on Jesus, the Son of God. Eternal life is not simply knowledge about God or something that happens after you die. It's an intimate, interactive relationship with Jesus now and you move forward into eternity. Heaven is not a destination when we die. Heaven is the present action of God's will with His creation. Simply put, isn't that what heaven is? Being in His presence? If we're not in His presence, isn't that hell? Simply put, being in Jesus' presence is heaven, right? So some of you are thinking, Oh my God, this is heaven? This sucks! Right? And most of you would be right. But maybe it sucks because you're waiting to die to get to heaven instead of experiencing it now. Living the abundant life now. Or maybe it sucks because you've put all your eggs in this thing called social action or social justice. And perhaps you've compromised on simply becoming a full-time student of Jesus and following what He's laid out for us in terms of how to live, not what we've created. Living a responsible life according to His will, not your own. And discipleship is learning from Jesus how to live my life as He would live my life as if He were I. And maybe your life sucks because you're living a life as you would live, independent of Him, not with Him. And not as Jesus would live it is as if He were in your shoes. So let's take a look at the next few verses here. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the weeping ones, for they will be comforted. And this is, this is not encouraging us to be sad people. This is not to be looking forward to be mournful people. Okay. Again, this is about the kingdom of God, not about being in mourning. When looking at mourning, we can understand this by describing it as people who are in deep emotional pain. One who cries uncontrollably because of what has happened to them. Those who don't know what to do except to weep or to moan or to whimper or to sob or to wail. They just don't know what to do. They're at wit's end. Emotionally, they're a wreck. And you don't earn the comfort because you're in mourning, but in spite of it. In the midst of your terrible state, the kingdom of heaven... Or the rule of heaven has come upon you with redemption by the grace of Jesus. Again, imagine yourself on that mountain. Sermon on the Mount where it's taking place. You just got healed after years and years of mourning. And Jesus touches you. And now you're comforted. He made the kingdom of heaven available to you. And perhaps it was for yourself or or for a loved one, but you fully understand what it means to be totally emotionally broken. And Jesus delivered members of that crowd from such an emotional torment. Jesus touched someone who was ill or demon possessed, really hurting, really badly emotionally. And after that person was touched, Jesus was able to comfort them by making the kingdom of heaven available to them. That's available to us today. To touch someone who is in mourning in such a way that to make the kingdom of heaven available to them to deliver them from their emotional pain, to deliver them from agony, to restore an emotional significance to their life, to encourage them, to ensure them that in their mourning, they matter. They have value to give them comfort. That's the Gospel. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the shy ones, the intimidated, the passive, Those who are pushed around, those who are walking around in a panic, just panic stricken, demoralized, mild, weak. The ones who are taken advantage of, unassertive ones, people lacking in self-confidence, those who are abused. You'll inherit the earth. You don't inherit the earth because you're meek. You inherit the earth in spite of your meekness, in spite of your broken spirit. In spite of your weak state or in spite of how you were abused, regardless, the kingdom of heaven or the rule of heaven is upon you by the grace of Jesus. So imagine yourself again on that mountain. There are so many people who were oppressed, some by their family, taken advantage of by maybe total strangers, by the government. They totally understood what it meant to be at the bottom ring of life. Jesus touched them. He made them heirs to the inherit earth. He gave them confidence. He gave them purpose, peace of mind, optimism, strength, an attitude to look after the weak, even though they were weak. Opening up the kingdom of heaven to them. As people who have access to this same power, we can do this today. We can give people a healthy outlook on life. Show them that there are reasons for life that are more than what the world can offer them. To offer them hope in Jesus and what the kingdom of God can offer them. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who burn with desire for things to be made right in themselves or in others. For those who haven't received justice, who haven't been treated fairly, who have been treated with partiality, with prejudice, those who have been cheated, you will be filled. You will be filled or satisfied with the outcomes not because you earned it by wanting it, but in spite of it. In spite of not being able to attain righteousness, you will get it. In spite of your inability to attain righteousness, Jesus has made the kingdom of heaven or the rule of heaven available to you by His grace. And you're up on that mountain. So many people who were cheated around you who didn't get a fair judgment on a ruling, who were treated unfairly, those who weren't given a job because of their culture or the color of their skin, the race, the ethnicity, social class, those who weren't paid a fair wage, those who were promised something only to find out that they were lied to. Can you see all of them? Can you see all the people horribly mistreated? Jesus touches them in their empty circumstances. He assured them that they will be satisfied with their end results. That being content was available to them. He gave them hope in that they will be pleased with the end results, the desired outcomes. We can provide that to people today. We can let them know that there will be a happy ending because the kingdom of heaven is available to them. All those spiritually impoverished people present before Jesus are blessed Only because of the gracious touch of the heavens that has freely fallen upon them through Jesus. Let's face it, some of the mistranslations Christians have are attractive because they suit our sense of propriety. Some people have a problem with God blessing people because, because of their need, because He chooses to, or because someone asked Him to. They want some way to earn it, or some way to put forth an effort to get what God gives out freely. And by thinking this way it allows people to conveniently bypass Jesus. Many of the translations of the Beatitudes leave Jesus out entirely because it's about how we are to do something. If all we need to do in order to be blessed in the kingdom of heavens is to recognize our spiritual poverty, be be mournful, be meek, let's just do that. And then just get blessed by God. We'll have blessing in cornered. We know how to do it. I'm gonna be sad, I'm gonna be poor in spirit. I'm going to be meek. God bless me. But then what, what place does Jesus have in this other than just saying the Beatitudes? Where's the dynamic relationship we have with God? Can we tell people how to make their way into king into the kingdom simply by telling them to be poor, to be mournful, to be meek? This just gives people a false security, a false hope that they have access to the kingdom of heavens. It allows them to continue to have a a distant God rather than a present King. And now, what this tells people is that they can earn their way into heaven. Just have a poor spirit. Just be mournful. Just be meek. That'll get you in. God will bless you for that. Is that what Jesus had in mind? And what if you aren't one of these Beatitudes? Are you then not blessed? And if you're not blessed, are you not allowed into the kingdom? So if this is the way to be blessed, you have to be poor. You have to mourn. And if that's so, shouldn't we all pursue being poor? Being sad? Is that what the Gospel is all about? Suffering? Deprivation? That would suck. That's not a very optimistic, hopeful Gospel. You know, He promised us an abundant life. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't die to ourselves, and I'm not saying that there isn't an element of sacrifice in being a disciple of Jesus. I mainly wanted to point out that the Beatitudes are not teachings on how to be blessed. They aren't instructions to do anything. They aren't conditions that please God. In fact, He delivered them from those conditions, right? The end of Matthew chapter 4. And we're not being told that we're better off by being poor, that we're better off by being meek, that will be more spiritually ahead by mourning. The Beatitudes are illustrations and accounts drawn from the mountain where the sermon was delivered of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship with Jesus. And Jesus singles, singles out cases that provide proof of that, that in Him, the rule of God through the heavens is available in any of life's circumstances that don't have a shred of hope. So he's up on the mountain. He says, hey, Jack, blessed are the poor in spirit. I know what you went through. I know that you feel disconnected with God. I know that you feel no spiritual significance. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Jill, blessed are those who mourn. I know what you've gone through emotionally. I know how you've been taken advantage of. I know that you're just torn down, that you're at the bottom of the barrel. You will be comforted. Jesus gives us that access for people. He gives us the availability of the kingdom. That's the gospel to people. Next week, we're going to go over a few more Beatitudes and we'll look more closely at how Jesus taught. We'll look at how he approached teaching and learning, how he strategically did this, and we'll we'll pull out a few more Beatitudes from this. The Beatitudes are not a set of how-tos. It's not a checklist to just say like, I'm this, I'm this. That only leads to self-righteousness. That only leads to legalism. The Beatitudes are a set of good news that Jesus delivered to throw open the doors of the kingdom. He wants us to access it. He wants us to give hope to people. He wants us to bless the socks off of people. Let's pray. Lord, thank You um, for keeping an eye on, on those of us who are at the bottom of, of life's circumstances, of conditions. Thank You for giving us that hope. Thank You for giving us the access to Your kingdom. We pray, Lord, that, that we, we would be able to, to access that, that we would be able to do that with power and, and to change the world through it. God, thank You for, for Your words of love and words of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.